I'd like to say good morning to our Cedar Lake campus and our Hobart Portage campus, especially HP. We look forward to your hospitality for our feast uh, prayer gathering uh, tonight. Look forward to being there and uh, praying and eating your food. <laughs> All right. We're going to be talking about eating today. It's a good segue. Uh, in fact, if... Uh, and probably most of us, I'm going to guess here, most of us have probably been to the Field Museum in Chicago. Big building, if you haven't been there. Lots to see. One of the things that, one of the displays that you see when you go to the Field Museum is, and if you don't know to look for it, you might miss it, but there is a display there. It's two stuffed trophy lions that they have on display. Uh, they don't have big manes, and they're not particularly big by lion standards, but they are probably the most notorious killers, animal killers, human killers, uh, in history. And we go back to 1898, that's where those lions are from. 1898, there was a construction, big construction project in Africa, so all these guys went out there, they're all living in tents, and they're building this big massive bridge there. When these two lions began to terrorize the camp, and they developed an appetite for human flesh, it is estimated that these two lions killed and devoured up to 135 people before being shot. And I have a picture here of uh, one of the lions and, and the fellow that, that shot him. They're known as the man-eaters of Savo. And uh, the story of these guys, there's been several movies that have been made about this in the 90s. There was a movie called The Ghost and the Darkness that uh, maybe you've seen. And so you can check out these lions next time you go to the Field Museum. But I'd like you to imagine with me, if you would, what it was like to be in one of those camps, let's say after about 25 people have been eaten. It's nighttime. There you are in your tent. You've heard all the stories, maybe you heard the screams of the people that were being eaten the night before, and it's nighttime. What are you doing? I'm thinking you're not sleeping, right? You're laying there, eyes wide open, and you are on high alert. What was that? Was that a, did you hear a twig snap? What was that? What was that shadow? Did you see a shadow there? No, I didn't see a shadow. Did you see a shadow? That's what I think it was like. Everyone laying in bed, wide awake, on high alert. Why? Because there was a lion lurking. There was a lion, two of them actually, on the hunt. It's kind of the same thing that happens when we maybe think there's an intruder in our home at night. All of a sudden, you know that feeling, right? You have that rush, that adrenaline rush, and you lay in bed and you listen, don't you? Do you hear anything? And if you hear something, maybe you, uh, you, know, you, you, you let the German shepherd go, <laughs> or uh, you get in touch with your friend Smith and Wesson, and uh, you get ready to take care of business. When an enemy is close, we go on high alert. And my dear church, what I want to say to you today from God's Word is that there is an enemy amongst us. There is an enemy that is lurking. He never sleeps. He is far more intelligent than we are. 
He has all of us under constant surveillance. He knows us better than we know ourselves, knows our tendencies, knows our weaknesses. He is very powerful. He has a huge army that is at his disposal, and he hates, he hates us in a way that would make ISIS look tame. If we had eyes to see, I believe that we would see his presence or one of his associates right here in the room with us right now. And I am, of course, talking about our great enemy, Satan. Our great enemy, Satan. I wonder if, I, as I said his name, did anybody sort of quietly sort of roll their eyes at the name or the thought of Satan? Because we certainly live in a culture that laughs at the suggestion that there is a spiritual evil being. And I think back to uh, the 90s when uh, the church lady on Saturday Night Live would have her sketches and oftentimes she would sort of coil her face and she would say, Satan, right? Like this. And everybody laughed and laughed. And if our secular world denies the existence of God, they certainly giggle at the existence of Satan. They see and fear no lion in the jungle. And friends, it's not just the secular world. We have all those people out there, they don't believe in Satan. There was a recent Barna poll of self-professed Christians, and half of them said that Satan is a symbol, not a real person. I would say the lion has camouflaged himself really, really well, wouldn't you? And then you go to the Bible, and you begin reading through the Bible, especially the gospel accounts, and what do you run into over and over and over again? Demon, demon, Satan. Jesus is constantly being confronted or confronting these evil beings, so much so that to deny the existence of Satan and demons is you almost have to deny the existence of Jesus because their stories are so intertwined. So today, this is what we're talking about from 1 Peter, verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8. And if you're looking and saying, what about verse 7? Do we skip it? We're saving verse 7 for our week of prayer coming up in a couple weeks. So this week and next, we're going to be talking about our great enemy and spiritual warfare. And my conviction is that most of us, I say myself included, do not think nearly enough about this reality. And Scripture calls us to take this very, very seriously. And I hope our little mini-series on this will equip us as a church and as individuals on how, how do we fight this enemy and to do so biblically. So let me read what Peter writes here, 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Here's what Peter says. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, in these two verses, you'll notice there are four things that Peter calls us to do in battling against Satan. They are, first of all, we are to be sober-minded. Secondly, we are to be watchful. Third, we are to resist him. And fourth, we are to know that others are suffering in this as well. All four of these 
admonitions are based upon the reality of a spiritual being, a dangerous enemy that is lurking amongst us. So what I want to do is I want to spend today talking about the enemy and sobering us to the reality of what we're actually involved in, and then next week we'll talk about how do we, how do, we do this? What does Peter say uh, in terms of how we resist him in other passages of Scripture? So let's begin with this lurking enemy and, uh, and let that motivate us to all want to do something about it. First of all, who's Satan? Satan is the personal name of an angelic being that is the lord of the demons and the lord and the leader of the demons. In fact, Satan literally means adversary. Adversary. I think Peter is actually doing a play on words here in verse 8 when he says, your adversary, the devil. He could have said, your Satan, the devil. Satan means adversary. Jesus calls this angelic being by the name Satan at least twice. He does so in uh, his temptation by Satan in the wilderness. And then you might recall that Peter was talking to him one time, and Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. He identified who was really speaking through Peter and what Peter was saying. So Satan is his name, but Satan has not always been his name for reasons that we'll get into. I want you to realize, first of all, that Satan is a person. Satan is a person. He is not a, an influence. He is not a force. Now, here we are two months uh, before the next Star Wars comes out. And for the next two months, all we're going to hear in our uh, sort of entertainment culture, at least, is about uh, Star Wars, The Force Awakens. And uh, I'm not excited about it at all. <laughs> Not at all. In fact, my recent First Bethelonians, I sent you something about that. But um, the danger with something like Star Wars is that the categories that it sort of calls us to tend to be sometimes then we apply those to things even in Scripture. So we sort of see the, the force and, uh, you know, the, the good force and the bad force, and that is George Lucas's Buddhism, essentially, that he's built into that story. So don't think in those Categories. I would say to you that Peter's better than George. Okay? Peter is better than George. And Peter and Scripture wants us to realize that Satan is a person, a created person. He has a mind, he has a moral will, and he has an intellect. He is spiritual, but he is a person. Next, Satan is a created angel. A created angel. He has not always existed. Uh, he is not eternal. He was created. You say, well, when was, when was Satan created? He was created in Genesis 1 along with everything else. Okay? Genesis 1, God creates this world, but he also creates the angelic world. So Satan had a birthday. And for a time then, we, that means, that because God steps back and says it's all very good, and that was true for the angelic world, it was true for the physical world. So for a time, there was harmony then between God and Satan, between harmony amongst all of the angels. There was not any conflict. Everything was very, very good. 
We also find that the Bible talks about hierarchies in the angelic world. Ephesians talks about principalities and powers and rulers in dark places. There is a hierarchy of authority and of beauty within the angelic world. And in that category, Satan, or Lucifer, as he's known in the Old Testament, was the most powerful, the most glorious, the most beautiful angel that God created. There was no angel like him. The only person more glorious, more beautiful, and more powerful than Satan was God himself. And this leads then to what happened. Satan rebelled against God. Two passages in the Old Testament describe this, and this is somewhat debated, to be honest with you. I think that it certainly applies. The first one is Ezekiel chapter 28. I'm going to read now the prophet's description of Satan's rebellion against God. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Here's the key. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Here's Isaiah 14, just adds this. Satan thought to himself, I will make myself like the most high God. What was going on? Satan looks around and realizes, or looks in the mirror and sees the glory, the beauty that God had given to him. He looks around and he sees every other angel is less than him, but there is one that is greater than him. And that led to something in his heart. Donald Gray Barnhouse describes it this way, Satan awoke in the first moment of his existence in the full-orbed beauty and power of his exalted position, surrounded by all the magnificence which God gave him. He saw himself as above all the hosts in power, wisdom, and beauty. Only at the throne of God itself did he see more than he himself possessed. And now this sounds like a familiar plot and story, doesn't it? What do they say is the hardest uh, instrument in any orchestra to play? Second fiddle. So before there was Brutus to Julius Caesar, or Absalom to David, or Judas to Jesus, there was Satan to God. And in that moment, the, the pride of Satan's heart in the beauty that God had given to him leads to a jealousy for the glory that God himself had and leads Satan then to rebel against God and to seek to dethrone him, to join the Trinity, to make it a quadinity or something. I don't know what he did. We're not told how he did it. All we know is it was pride that motivated Satan. And God judged Satan's rebellion by casting him out of heaven, and guess where he sent him? 
right here. This world is Satan's home. This is where God sent him. And if one passage in Revelation is to be taken literally, a third of all the angels followed him in this rebellion. The demons of a feather had flocked together, and they were all judged and condemned. So when you read in the Bible that Jesus cast out a demon, for example, that demon used to be an angel. That, that demon was an angel that followed Satan in his rebellion and then was corrupted, sent to this world, and is part of Satan's army. Our world is their home, their malice for God and his glory is raging. It is raging, and it is absolute. Jesus describes this moment in Luke 10 this way, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He was the great angel of light. When God cast him down, I'll bet it did look like lightning. Down he came, and here he is now. So somewhere between Genesis 1, when God sees everything and says it is very good, and Genesis 3, when Satan now is the serpent who is tempting Adam and Eve, somewhere between those two chapters, this rebellion took place. The next thing to know about Satan is that he is the enemy of God, of his purposes and his people. Listen to what Ephesians 6 says about who our real enemy is. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Your enemy is not your sister. Your enemy is not your husband or your wife. Your enemy is not that guy at work or your neighbor. Your enemy is not the brother or sister in the church that has a little different belief about something than you do. Our enemy is Satan and all the demons. And they live in a world, the Bible describes reality this way, that there is the physical world that we can see, this made up of atoms and molecules and everything that we see here. And there is another world. It is the spiritual world. And that world is as real as this world is. We just can't see it. It's kind of like if you've ever gone snorkeling. You put on the snorkel, you get the little thing, you know, and then you, you sort of swim out into what, the little cove or wherever you are, and you put your head down, and all of a sudden there's an entire world that you couldn't see before. And there's these pretty fish and all the things that are going on. You're like, I had no idea that was there. There's a day coming when all of us are going to be like, I had no idea that was there. This whole thing that is going on, if we had eyes to see, right here, right now, in this place, I believe there would be beings, spiritual beings, right here. Remember, what, remember the story of Elisha when the, the armies surround, uh, the armies, of, I forget who it was, the Midianites, somebody surround the city, and and uh, the servant's like, we're going to die. What are we going to do? And Elisha prayed. He said, God, help my servant see what is really there. And all of a sudden, he sees the chariots of the armies of God. That world is just out of our view. That loved one that died in the faith, that's the world that they're living in right now. It's as real as this world is. 
And it is in that world that these demons and Satan primarily are existing. But, they, so they live there, but they are seeking to influence this world. And they're able to do so for their own twisted purposes. And my dear friends, we need to realize something. Satan is completely evil. Absolutely, completely evil. There is no vestige of goodness in him. There is no Anakin Skywalker that needs to come out from the Darth Vader. I knew there was goodness in him. Father, come. There is none of that with Satan. He is absolutely, totally bent on demeaning and defaming the glory of God. That's where our, you know, we're in rebellion. We're enemies of God. We're born in sin. But we are different than Satan. The unbeliever can do good things. Walk old ladies across the street. Give money to good things like that. They can do that. It doesn't merit favor with God. It doesn't save them. But they retain a certain, although broken, goodness to them. Satan has none of that. So these people that, I'm going to worship Satan. I'm going to see if maybe he'll do good things to me. They are, they are, it's ludicrous. There is nothing good in him. There is no mercy in him. There is no kindness in him. They are filled with pride. They are filled with hate and bitterness and murder. Their every thought and intent all the time, always, is towards evil. The destruction of God's glory, the destruction of God's people, the destruction of anything that's good that reflects the beauty and the glory of God in this world, they hate it. And how do they do this? They tempt, they influence, they corrupt, they compromise, they divide, they discourage, they defame, and they destroy anything intended to bring God glory. They're like parasites. They can't make anything good, they can't make anything beautiful, but they can live off the good and the beautiful and corrupt it and twist it. That's how they operate. So guess what is the most glorious thing that God is doing in this world? It is redeeming sinners from the kingdom of darkness and bringing them over through the gospel into the kingdom of light. And it is the church. So guess where they primarily want to operate and to do their destructive work? It is within God's people. It is the church of Jesus. Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who uh, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, describing the work of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Satan? (laughs) Get that? How can people laugh about the lion lurking in the jungle? Their eyes have been blinded to keep them from seeing something. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 
They are doing all that they can. Maybe right now in this room for an unbeliever who's visiting right now, they do all that they can to make you think this is silly. This is nothing to worry about. There's nothing to it. To blind people to real glory and light, which is found in the face of Jesus Christ. It is in the gospel of Jesus. Where all, What's salvation, in fact? Salvation is when I was blind, but now I see. What do I see? I see truth. I see hope. I see forgiveness. I see a relationship with my creator by believing in Jesus and in his work on the cross. I see real beauty when I see Jesus by faith. My eyes are wide open. Now I am able to see. And I'm in the kingdom of light. But they obfuscate, they darken, they blind. They don't want anybody to see that. Christian, can I just say it this way? Satan hates you. He hates you. He hates every good thing God is doing in your life. He hates every good reflection of God's goodness seen in your life. He is absolutely committed to doing everything that he can to destroy you. But it's not about you. This is important to understand as well. It's not really about us. This has everything to do with what happened between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. Satan really hates God. Think about the Nazis and ISIS for a moment. I think they give a a good example of this. When you study the Nazis in World War II, there's a lot of people that they hated, but who did they hate the most? They hated the Jews the most. Now, why did they hate the Jews the most? If you go into the story, you see that Hitler and the leadership were involved in occultic activities. I believe they were led by Satan and the things that they were doing. And guess what you find when somebody is being led by Satan? They hate people like the Jews who have a genetic connection to the promises of God in the Old Testament, which is why anti-Semitism continues to be found in the world around us. They are genetically tied to something good that God promised to them. And the Nazis sought to exterminate them. Or think about ISIS in our modern day right now. What do we see sadly and tragically in the news and online? What, who, do, who does ISIS hate? Is it Dutch people? Or other wonderful people like the Dutch? <laughs> is it just some random nationality that ISIS hates? Or is it merely a coincidence that ISIS is raping and cutting the heads off of Christians. Why Christians of all people? Because they are led by demonic doctrine and influence, which leads them to hate God's people. That is not an accident. And it goes all the way back to somewhere between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. And Satan hates us much more than Hitler, the Jews, or ISIS Christians. 
The Bible calls him lawless, a murderer, and a liar. And he is far more powerful than any of us begin to imagine. So powerful, Jude tells us, that even Michael the archangel would not mess with him. So here now in Peter, let's come back to 1 Peter then. Peter calls him a lion. If you're going to pick somebody to describe Satan, how about the most powerful animal on the planet, a lion? That's a good one, I think. Here again is what Peter says. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I hope after my introduction, these are now words that get our attention. When we realize who the lion is and what he is bent on and and his motivation. And Peter says that this lion is doing three things. Notice that he is prowling, he is roaring, and he is seeking to devour. Let's talk about all three of those. First of all, he is the prowling enemy. Prowling is all about secrecy, isn't it? You've probably seen like the National Geographic videos of the lions on the Serengeti or wherever it is, and you know, they're, they, they get down, they're, somehow they're, they can hinge like that, and they can, you know, they kind of get their things going like this, and they're down below the level of the grass, right? Because they're trying to blend into the grass. Prowling is all about camouflage and blending into the surroundings around you. Their lions are able to walk quietly. In fact, somebody after first service said to me, did you know that they cup their paws so that if a twig breaks, they muffle the sound? I didn't know that, but here now I've added it in this message. They're able to like run almost silently and under the grass. They blend in. Their, their coloring blends them in. They don't want anyone to know that they are there. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan is all about disguise and camouflage. In fact, right now I doubt, I doubt Satan's very happy that we're even talking about him like this. What are we doing? We're bringing him and his activities into the light. And he does not want that. He loves darkness. He has to cloak himself. He's a very good prowling lion. He doesn't draw attention to himself. That's why if somebody comes to you and says, you know, I I saw a demon, I doubt it. They don't want to draw attention to themselves. They're all about prowling and hiding. That doesn't mean that they aren't able to do things, though, they tempt God's people towards unbiblical thinking, counterfeit idols. Hey, let's, this is really what we're supposed to be living for. Little compromises in moral behavior, it's no big deal. And a thousand other indiscernible activities, no doubt, at work in our lives. This enemy prowls through anything that God intended to be good. That means that he is prowling through, Christians, your marriage. Your marriage is to reflect the glory of Christ and his love for the church. Satan hates Christian marriage. Satan hates Christian families, little churches where Jesus is to be 
held high, a little oasis of gospel living. He hates families, Christian parents. He hates your children. He hates churches. And so he seeds little, or sows little seeds of disunity and distrust and seeks to drive a wedge within the church. I think you could expand it to friendship, government, courts of justice. Anything that God established and declared good, Satan hates it. And his goal is to defame the name of God in the world. One Puritan said this, Satan cast down none suddenly from the pinnacle of a high profession into the lowest abyss of wickedness, but rather leads them by oblique descents and turnings, lower and lower until at last they take hold of hell. Our enemy, friends, is sneaky. He is incredibly clever. And he has been studying human behavior for millennia. And he is always surveilling us. He knows our tendencies. He knows our weaknesses. As an example, he used Eve to get to Adam and Adam to get to God. How's that for a clever device in Genesis 3? He is our prowling enemy. We can't see him, but we can often see his effect. Secondly, he is our roaring enemy. Now, that sounds kind of like an oxymoron, right? Because a lion that is on the prowl is not a lion that is roaring, right? Roaring is about making yourself known. So why would he be roaring? This is Peter, I think, describing his power and his dominance. That's what a lion's roar is about. It makes me think of years ago when my brother was a missionary in South America, we went down to see him in Paraguay, and they took us to a Paraguayan zoo. Okay, now this is a very poor country, and so don't think Lincoln Park Zoo with this. You know, you go to Lincoln Park, and you got all the big animals, you know, the big scary animals, and what do they have? Big, thick glass, you know, and, and distance, there's a moat around it. It's all there designed to keep the scary animal from getting amongst the, the people. The Paraguayan Zoo was much different. We get there, and basically they had all these big lions and tigers and all of that. They were basically in like chicken coops. Wood with just like a, a chicken wire, you know, between the, the, the animal and the people. And you could walk right up, literally, here's the chicken wire. You could walk right up to, to the uh, cage. And here's all these, you know, all these big, they're going around like this. And at first you're kind of like, whoa, this is kind of unsettling, you know. And uh, so we were there and my dad at one of the cages sort of family moment for us. At one of the cages, one of these big, I don't remember if it was a big tiger, big lion, leopard, whatever it was, um, it had stopped prowling and was just leaning against the chicken wire. Well, my dad's standing like eight inches away from this lion, and he later said, I thought to myself, this is the only chance I'll ever have to touch one of these animals. So my dad goes like this, and he pokes the lion, and as fast as you could blink, this lion goes like that. We all, wow, you know, we all jump back. Oh, 
my mom was mad at my dad. <laughs> what was that roar about? Don't mess with me. Do not mess with me. Satan's roar should communicate to us that he is not to be messed with. He exerts incredible authority in this world. He offered the kingdoms of this world to Jesus, and Jesus didn't deny his right to do so, which means that more powerful than any president or king, more powerful than the U.S. Army, more powerful than all of our nuclear weapons combined, is Satan. Don't mess with him. Not even Michael the archangel would dare mess with Satan. And finally, it says, he is our devouring enemy. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, like those lions uh, at the camp. He has an a- he, he's a man-eater. He has an appetite for human beings. In fact, the Greek word there, it means to eat with one bite. To eat with one bite. He's about gulping us down. He's not a nibbler. This speaks to his desire to destroy us. So, friends, what do you think? Is this somebody to ignore, not think about, pretend doesn't exist? I think that Peter would call us to be vigilant. In fact, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful, resist him. No others are struggling with him as well. And how to do that is next week's message, okay? The last thing I want to say about this is not only is he a prowling enemy, a roaring enemy, a devouring enemy, but Scripture is also clear that he is a conquered enemy. He is a conquered enemy. We go all the way back... We go all the way back to Genesis 3. When God judges Adam and Eve, he also has a judgment on the serpent, as he's described there, on Satan. And here's what God says to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The very first prophetic word that there was somebody coming who was going to do something to this serpent. And by the way, how do you kill a snake? You take care of its head, don't you? And God says, he's coming for your head. You're going to bruise his heel. He's coming for your head, buddy. And we have that prophetic word about Jesus. He is the fulfillment of this prophecy. The Son of God, you talk about why did Jesus come into this world? There's all kinds of reasons that you can say that he came into this world. He came into this world to save sinners. He came into this world to fulfill the will of the Father. But amongst the reasons that he came into this world was to defeat Satan, to conquer death, which is Satan's sword that he wields. How did Jesus do it? He came into this world. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law, which the Bible says meant that the law had no rightful claim upon his life. We have violated the law. The wages of sin, therefore, is death for us. Jesus never sinned. Therefore, death had no rightful claim on him. 
But when he died then, he was qualified to die for all the other people that it did have a claim on. And so Jesus died conquering death, fulfilling the law, and by doing that, giving a blow to Satan's head. It was, it's a fatal blow. This victory has already been won. You say, well, why then is all this struggle going on? It's kind of like World War II where you had the, you know, the, the, the peace was declared in Tokyo, but you had all those Japanese soldiers that kept fighting on the islands, right? Same thing is going on here. Satan has been conquered. He has been dealt a fatal blow. But when is a lion most dangerous? When it is wounded. When it is desperate. And Satan knows that every day we live, this day, October 25th, 2015, is one day closer to Satan's final day and the demon's final day. And they know that, and they wield their influence in this world with a kind of desperation and a hatred and a bitterness. They're active in this world. And the Bible says there's coming a day where Satan's fate will be secured. This is Revelation 20. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is Satan's future right there. And he knows that verse. He knows that verse. And until that day comes, he is going to do all that he can to defame the name of God, especially in the church of Jesus Christ. But he is a conquered foe, friends. Jesus has won the victory. And with that victory gives to us power and authority and a way to fight this battle, which we'll talk about next week. But I want to give you encouragement, friends. We do not leave here in a battle that we're ultimately going to lose. We are fighting a battle that we are ultimately going to win. And in a sense, it's already been won because of what Jesus has done. And because he won, so do we.